If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Prehistory can often feel incredibly distant, but something that can bring us closer to the human experience in this time well before written records is art. And fortunately, we still have some engravings and paintings that survive from the Paleolithic era, principally on the wall of caves and famously at places like Lascaux and Altamira. In the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, David Musgrove put your questions on cave art to Paul Pettit, Professor of Prehistoric Archaeology at the University of Durham and author of a new book, Homo Sapiens Rediscovered, How Science is Revolutionising Our Origin Story. To start, David asked Paul to explain exactly what we mean by prehistoric or more specific Paleolithic cave art. So this is drawing, painting and engraving on cave walls, as the name implies. And although we do have the odd bits of art that belongs to the Bronze Age, Neolithic or later, it is almost entirely Paleolithic in age. That is to say, it belongs to the Old Stone Age, the earliest archaeological period in prehistory we have. 
let's delve into the data bit more there. Um, so you said it's mostly from the Paleolithic. That's a very big period, spans an enormous amount of time, doesn't it? Um, how is cave art dated? And then a sort of a, a subsidiary question from one of our uh, listeners, Susan Pollitz, who wants to know how far back can prehistoric cave art be dated? Right. Well, originally it couldn't be dated, certainly until the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, so really, prehistorians had to rely on relative schemes, looking at examples where one piece of art had been superimposed upon another, and just making simple guesses that obviously we're dealing with two phases there. So we had two grand schemes of a, a development of art throughout the course of the Upper Paleolithic, let's say from around 40,000 years ago down to the end of the Ice Age, uh, a little after 12,000 years ago. However, we do now have certainly two techniques uh, that we can use uh, to date it directly. The first is radiocarbon, uh, which of course can date anything that once lived. So if we have cave art that's been drawn with charcoal, we can date that. So we can scrape a little bit off now and thankfully the technology is such that we only need minute amounts, so we're not really damaging any art. But of course it's limited to charcoal and black colour can be obtained by mineral pigments uh, such as manganese, which which cannot be dated and a lot of the art is red and it's hematite or ochre uh, which can't be dated as well so we're limited to those examples but when uh, we do have charcoal we can scrape a bit off but the important thing there is that it, the radiocarbon is dating actually the burning event that produced that charcoal which may or may not be the same as using that charcoal for the art itself so there are some limitations with it the other technique uh, that can be used, which, which I've been far more involved in, is uranium thorium. And this, rather like radiocarbon, is based on radioactive decay. And we're not dating the art directly there. We're dating stalactites that the art may have been created on which would provide a maximum age for the art, or most commonly stalactites which have dripped and formed over the art, which provide minimum ages. So with a, ideally a combination of the two and ancillary data like relative um, uh, superimpositioning, this kind of thing, we can get a pretty decent hanging of the uh, development of art over time. And to, to go to the second question, what we can tell now is we have some uranium-thorium dates of stalactites over examples of red ochre art, which tell us that the art is older than 64,000 years ago. These are three sites in Spain currently, three caves, uh, which we have for that. So this is at least 20,000 years before our own species, Homo sapiens, turn up there. So the most likely candidates are the Neanderthals, the indigenous European humans uh, that were on the scene long before we arrived. The interesting thing is these aren't figurative Art. These aren't depictions of anything. They are extensions of the body, really, where Neanderthals had placed their hands on the wall and spat a red pigment uh, at it to leave the ghost of the hand. Or they've coloured their fingertips with a pigment and pressed them to the wall and so on. So it's quite interesting. It might suggest Neanderthals were doing very different things with their cave art uh, than we were. 
Okay, that's a great answer. There's a couple of things I'd just like to pick up on. It sounds mm. like you, could, you you kind of really need very specific conditions sometimes to get a really good dating opportunity. Is that right? You kind of, if you've got the stalactites in the right place and you've got the right sort of composition of the of the artwork itself, you kind of like it's not going to work in every every example, is it? Exactly. If you have a cave with no charcoal drawings, you can't use radiocarbon. And if you have a cave that hasn't been relatively sealed and moist in the past, then you have no stalactites that can't be dated either. So uh, by comparing the themes and styles of art in one cave to another which is similar where the art has been dated we can hang these together if you like at least in a very broad sense so actually while in absolute terms uh, 95 percent of caves with art have not been dated we can at least suspect on pretty decent grounds roughly when they date too and and then the other point you, you brought up there which is absolutely fascinating is this idea that neanderthal were involved in making art and that's uh, that sort of um uh, predicts a question that we've got later on which was um did neanderthals produce cave art could you could you just very quickly sketch out the relationship as we understand it today and this has changed a lot hasn't it this is a very this is a moving picture of of the relationship and dynamic between neanderthals and modern homo sapiens the the species that that, that we are today Absolutely. And ancient DNA uh, has really clarified this picture. So Neanderthals were the original human indigenes in Europe and Central Asia. They evolved from probably the same uh, ancestor species as we did uh, from at least half a million years ago down to their extinction around and about 40,000 years ago. So for most of their existence, there is no Homo sapiens in Europe. We're, of course, an African species. We evolved there and gradually dispersed several times, uh, increasingly further into Eurasia uh, every time. So when Homo sapiens first begins moving up into the north and into uh, the southern parts of Europe, Neanderthal groups, or at least some of them, were probably still around. So the genetics comes in at this point, which shows, as is very well known now, we share about 2% of our DNA with them. So clearly there has been some interbreeding. Probably that's been reduced over time. So perhaps we originally shared about 4%. And what that suggests is that we were meeting them on occasion and mating on occasion as well. Similarly with the Denisovans, who are more of a, they're contemporaries with Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, but more of a Central and East Asian uh, species as well. So I think what we have to think of is that on the peripheries of their ranges, Neanderthals in Europe, Denisovans in Central Asia, Homo sapiens in Africa and the Near East, they would meet and mate occasionally. And that would explain that level of genetic difference. But essentially, the question is whether they had any meaningful interactions, if they shared ideas as well as genes, uh, too. And this has always been a bit of a thorny issue, and I suspect that they didn't. We don't have any similar archaeological items on Neanderthal sites or on early Homo sapiens sites. You know, they're not trading javelin tips or uh, anything like that. What they do that uh, do, however, is share a broadly similar 
visual culture. They're wearing ornaments made from the same types of materials, typically fox canines that have just been pierced so you can suspend them as a necklace, uh, the odd animal bone and so on. It might suggest that Neanderthals, or very late Neanderthals, when they did come into contact with Homo sapiens, they were sharing some kind of very similar, uh, very simple visual culture so they all understood very basic messages between them but I wouldn't want to over exaggerate that I think these examples of the two meeting were very very rare Okay, and I should say um, you sketch out that story very nicely in your in your new book, Homo Sapiens Rediscovered, as well. So if uh, if listeners want more on that, then uh, then then have a have a look in the book. But let's get back to to the cave art specifically because that's what we're we're supposed to be delving into. We need to we need to establish where this art is geographically and also um, well just geographically first. Where where do we find this cave art? Yeah, was in terms specifically of Paleolithic cave art, which we're we're talking about here, we actually find it at each end of Eurasia. Most of it, and certainly historically, we've understood most of it is in Europe and specifically in Western Europe. But we have examples now that we have very good dates for uranium thorium again right over in indonesia and they are rather similar to what we have in europe which suggests that perhaps homo sapiens at least had a very widespread tradition as they dispersed out of africa for the first time but when we think of cave art traditionally it's effectively french and Spanish, with a few outliers. We have a little bit in the Czech Republic, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in Britain uh, as well. Uh, so we should never think that everyone in the Upper Paleolithic was doing cave art whenever they found a cave. It, it was probably uh, only specific groups and those typically in the West of Europe. And you're absolutely right to, to pick me up on saying we're talking about Paleolithic cave art here. You, can, you do get later cave arts all, all over the world, don't you? There's, there's all sorts of interesting examples. Yes, exactly. And, and often reinvented themes as well, like hand stencils and so on. Mm. Brilliant. And, and then in terms of the clues in the name here a bit, in terms of cave art, it's found in caves. But where in caves and what sort of caves? <laughs> it's actually part of a very widespread tradition of art that is on the body or on small portable objects, on probably outside uh, locations, cliff edges and so on, where it's, of course, eroded away. It can be in the, on the back walls of very shallow rock shelters that were used as campsites uh, and it can be at any location in caves in small caves in the daylight zone of the mouth or very deep inside we have examples of it a few kilometers into some caves like Rufignac south of France for example but the interesting thing is while it really differs and many caves can have a handful of images quite simple quite close to their entrances others can often have several several dozen or several hundred and they can really go back to the the deepest part of the cave that humans can navigate through so sometimes one gets the impression that it's almost a human marking of the cave to show that they've you know effectively explored the whole depths uh, of the cave and humanized it using that art if you like so it's very different rules sometimes the art can be very obvious think of all those 
wonderful animals literally swirling around your head uh, in Lascaux, a very public space. Or it can be very personal, almost hidden, the odd little piece. And one gets the impression that in many cases it was the creation of the art that was important rather than a very modern notion of I'm going to draw a bison so everybody can look back and appreciate it. Yeah, I, I've, I've visited a few of these caves. I'm sure you've visited them many times. And I, and I was very struck once by you really had to go quite deep into the cave and the guide with his flashlight was, you know, it was was guiding us along, telling us to not hit our heads and stuff. And it was like, we're really going on a journey deep inside here. Um, so there was obviously, um, well, actually, let's let's go on to the technicalities of how the art was made because um, that leads on quite nicely. Uh, a question from uh, Marie Sandvig wanted to know what was in the pigments to make them last so long. Uh, and then... A, a broader question, a search engine question, which was how was the art actually produced? So we, we have to imagine that there was people with lighting of some sort. They weren't doing it in the dark. What do we know about how the art was produced? Yeah, that's that's a great question from Marie, actually. So, yes, we need light as long as we're getting out of the daylight zone in the cave mouths. So we have lots of evidence of that, thankfully. A simple torch, by which, of course, I mean a bundle of reeds or twigs soaked in animal fat, you know, held up uh, aloft. We have traces of those. Uh, rather like a cigarette, when it builds up lots of ash, we flick it to rejuvenate it. Uh, we have little marks of charcoal left on cave walls where they've done the same to a torch but also little stone lamps there's a beautiful carved sandstone example in Lascaux that was left there but often these are very um, simple little um, pebbles uh, of natural stone with little indentations in the point being it's a light that really only illuminates a couple of meters it's constantly moving and consequently, it shows that our Paleolithic artists were experiencing this art in a very, very different way to us. We have bright light, it's a still light, and so on. So the movement and the shadows associated with it, and particularly the position of the human viewer, were all important. So from a modern perspective, we have to think of it really as a form of installation art. So the way one moves can cause the, the animals to move, the way the light flickers and so on. So we see it now as still images reproduced in books and so on. Uh, but for a, a Paleolithic viewer, I think, this is all part of that mysterious journey into the, into the depths of the earth. That's a very evocative um, image you describe there. Um, let's come back to that. But what about the pigments for, uh, and Marie's question? Ah, yes. So... Well, the art can be engraved first. Much of the art we have is very shallow line engravings with, with stone tools. Very difficult to see. That's an example of a more personal type of art rather than a public one meant to be seen perhaps by many people. And that doesn't really reproduce well in, in big glossy books. So you know, we tend to, to focus in these more on the, the drawings, in other words, as a modern uh, charcoal drawer would do, or the paintings. Sometimes a wet pigment was applied with probably a, a brush of horsehair 
or a leather pad, something like that. And finally, these pigments can be spat as well. So if you imagine holding your hands or the outer side of your hands parallel to each other and using that to guide yourself and spitting, you can create a line that's broadly quite sharp as well. So there's a number of techniques that can be used and typically the pigments are either black, manganese or charcoal or red or a variation of it and that's hematite. We tend to call it red ochre but in fact ochre can outcrop in yellow biscuit brown colours, even violet. So that's the palette and that might have been important for the fact that in a low light environment red is fairly visible whereas black becomes blended with the shadows so again it's a it's a play on this but Marie's question as to you know what were they made of to survive so much certainly as anybody who's wiped some ochre on their uh, on their hands will know it, it you know takes a while to get off because it's a mineral uh, and so on but it's actually the micro environments of the caves themselves that really protect it normally they're fairly stable in their temperature they're cool and not cold it doesn't oscillate you know and if you don't have insects you know uh, chewing the surfaces of the wall you don't have bears rubbing past it you know you don't have frost thaw action all this sort of thing that's why it uh, tends to survive and even better if you have a stalactite slowly forming <laughs> over it so probably we tend to assume that art uh, was probably all over the landscape. We do have open-air examples such as Portugal's Coa Valley and, uh, and associated areas in Spain. But, of course, the glacial period, frost-thaw action and this kind of thing tends to obliterate everything in the open air. So what we're dealing with really is the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, where caves have just been relatively sealed environments. And think of the textiles in the tomb of Tutankhamun uh, as well, you know, for the, for the very same reason uh, it tends to survive. Brilliant. Okay. Now we've got a couple of questions here which lead on from what you've just been talking about, trying to understand uh, the artists themselves and what we know about them. So we've got Nicholas Surges who, who wanted to know whether uh, the creation of the art was a social activity. And, and Nicholas talks about um, the sort of the, the, the handprints that you were just describing, saying um, there's examples of child-sized handprints high up on a wall, which suggests that maybe somebody was on, on someone else's shoulders. I don't know if that's true or not. And then EMG uh, wanted to know whether we can tell whether the artists were left or right-handed do, do, what do we know about the the sort of the, the the people who must have created the art yes yeah well nicholas is absolutely right we have it's actually a print of a child's hand about two meters up on the wall of cosker cave near nice and it's actually a it's on what is known as moon milk it's uh it's the breakdown of the carbonate rich cave wall so it's basically a whitish mud and historically it's been associated with lots of magical things you know it's actually rich in calcium so it's medicinally quite useful so it probably had some kind of significance back in the period of the cave artists so uh, the idea of this is because it's de definitely a child's hand grabbing some of this material the child wouldn't have been able to reach up so it's been held up or sitting on the shoulders uh, of a human there as well and we do actually have in other caves 
footprints, naked feet, uh, which are children as well. And we do have sometimes traces, lines produced by moving the fingers, rubbing the fingers uh, along these soft, muddy cave walls, and they're consistent with the size of children's fingers. So it doesn't seem to have been exclusive to adults on occasion, but of course we're dealing with some 500 caves and at least 25,000 years of figurative art so I wouldn't like to generalise and say it was always everyone uh, who could do it. In some caves it seems to have been a very personal almost private thing one individual there perhaps even alone communing with the darkness something like that but in others we have these grand compositions Lascaux Altamira, Chauvet Cave, for example, El Castillo in Spain, where where it certainly seems to have been a communal uh, act. We can actually tell where pigments were being sourced from using geochemical analysis. And we can tell, let's say for Lascaux, that pigments were sourced for several tens of kilometres in pretty much all directions of the compass. That's probably a sign that several groups were coming together there for a few months of the year eating reindeer, uh, there's lots of reindeer remains scattered around the floor there, and probably all doing their rituals and singing their songs and producing their art all together as this shared uh, activity. We can tell about handedness too. Sometimes with hand stencils, we can tell that uh, both left and right hands were produced, but we don't know if the, the, the person whose hand is being stenciled was the one spitting the pigment there uh, as well. In some respects, it could be a pair of people doing it again as something more communal. But often we can tell from, say, the direction of brush strokes, the, even the orientation of animals that... As in the modern world, 80% or so of the artists were right-handed, uh, as, as, as far as we can tell. If any of your uh, listeners, say, imagine if they're right-handed, if they imagine drawing an animal from the side profile, my guess is that they will start with the head and that head will be to the left and therefore the animal will wind up being uh, facing to the left uh, as well. So various little tricks we can deploy uh, like that to show that handed and brain lateralization was pretty much the same uh, as today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Listeners, if, if you fancy having a go at that and uh, and, uh, and and try and draw a, a bison or something, tell us how you get on and tell us if uh, if Paul's thesis is correct there. Right, let's let's move on a bit to uh, to to, um, to to the sort of the big question, which is form and function, I suppose. So uh, Kate, at the uh, with the excellent name Kate at How Why Who When, uh, wants to know: Do the styles or subjects vary much across the world? Um, and Brian Page similarly wants to know about stylistic changes over time. Whilst Richard Goldstein has uh, the question: is, Was cave art in one location influenced by? art in another location so sort of lots of big questions about the similarities between what we see can you sort of try and take all those in one go absolutely so the overwhelmingly dominant theme is animals we hardly get representations of anything else we certainly don't get depictions of landscapes or anything like that there's no rivers hills or whatever there and those animals that are depicted are overwhelmingly the herbivores of the european steppes that were so critical to survival you know they formed the major prey of our hunter gatherers in the upper paleolithic so the european art is dominated by wild horse that's by far and away the most commonly depicted by bovids bison or the extinct cattle aurochs by cervids in other words red deer and occasionally reindeer uh, and also ibex in montane areas like the pyrenees and then occasionally mammoth and one or two other animals woolly rhino for example over the other side of eurasia of course we have a slightly different spectrum of animals that were hunted there so in indonesia uh, the species depicted include the the so-called pig deer the babirusa uh, now extinct uh, so these are always a reflection of those animals that hunter-gatherers are critically uh, dependent on. So these do indeed change over time. So figurative art appears not when Homo sapiens first disperse into Europe. In my opinion, they're not doing cave art so much at that point, uh, but perhaps within two or three thousand years uh, of them uh, being present here. When it does appear let's say for the sake of argument about 33,000 years ago uh, the animals are fairly simplistic they're simple outlines 
They're obviously identifiable to species. You know if you're dealing with a horse or if you're dealing with a bison and so on. But there's very little in the way of internal detail, you know, their peelage or anything like that. And over time, certainly that level of naturalism increases. Also, the grouping together of animals that were originally quite isolated individual examples, we get more of what we might think of as scenes we get the uh, introduction of perspective as well. It's not something that's that common in Upper Paleolithic art, but over time it does increase. And also a concern with representing movement, almost like comic uh, strips where you have several legs, you know, two or three legs too many or two heads on an animal that should be read rather like a flick book uh, style animation and so on. So we can use traits like that as a chronological indicator. And then finally, there is stylistic change too. So simply the way one would draw, say, a horse's mane that, say, uh, 20,000 years ago forms just one continuous line from the, the horse's nose right through to its back to, let's say, individual hairs standing upright in a very aggressive stallion, uh, which comes a little later. So uh, the way hooves are depicted... This kind of thing. So yes, stylistic change seems to be very, very useful to us uh, for, for being able to periodise art, if we haven't dated it directly, uh, to within one or two thousand years, which, which to your listeners might seem horrifically <laughs> imprecise. Uh, but, um, you know, in terms of 25,000 years or more of Paleolithic art, then, uh, you know, it's pretty good for us. Yeah, got got to, got to work with what you've got, haven't you? So, so you, you've you've talked about this briefly, um, but uh, Chelbelsky here has has a very good question, which is why are humans so rarely depicted in in Western cave art? And you know, you, as you said, it's mostly animals, but there are some examples of of, of humans and, and human figures, aren't there? There are indeed, although quite rightly you've hit the nail on the head, they are always relatively underrepresented. And for that matter, they're always very poorly done as well. With the animals, whatever the level of skill, they're pretty decent representations. I certainly couldn't create a drawing of a horse anything like as good uh, as an example of Paleolithic art. But the humans are always odd. There's always a bit of an animalness about them you know they might be uh, they might have a human-like body but their head looks a bit bird-like or bear-like and so on so depending on who who you're listening to we might have anything between a couple of hundred and 600 or so images out of thousands of animals but really, if we start thinking, some of these probably represent bears that are rearing on their legs and so on. So if we have a critical approach, humans are even uh, even rarer. We don't really have anything that could be said to, to be portraits, except for heads engraved onto stone plaquettes in a French cave called La Marche, which do actually represent faces. And it's very tempting to see that here we have individuals about 15 16,000 years old that are still portraitized uh, in stone. But humans are, however one looks at it, exceptionally rare and exceptionally 
odd. And the reason why, well, people have speculated that perhaps there was a taboo uh, depicting humans, uh, which there isn't for animals and so on, but I don't think necessarily we, uh, we have evidence for that. I think there's two reasons why humans aren't depicted. The first is because it's all about prey animals. There are carnivores occasionally represented. They're always very rare. It's all about those animals. And if there was an underpinning religious system, a reason, a ritual reason for creating the art, then certainly it pertains to creation. And hunter-gatherers tend to think of themselves uh, as borrowing from the environment only. And they're very concerned with propitiating the spirits, you know, not taking too many horses without doing their appropriate rituals to bring them back into the world and I think first then that explains why of course the concern is with animals rather than depicting humans but there is I think another equally important reason why humans aren't depicted and that is because it is an installation art and humans are there participating in it so you don't need to draw them if you're presence, your movement, the way your light source is flickering and so on, uh, is such an important part of that process as well. So humans are there in person, in the flesh, so to speak, celebrating uh, the creation of life of these animals that are so important. So that question leads us very nicely into into the big question and and the and the most prominent search engine question, which is why was prehistoric cave art made? Now people have been thinking. Obviously, looking at this cave art it invites reflection, it invites contemplation, doesn't it? And people have been contemplating and trying to work out what the hell it means uh, ever since it was discovered 100, 150 years ago, whenever that was. When I was studying archaeology, I remember there, was, there were theories like it was just because it's art, art for art's sake. It was a mental mind map. It was um, to help with hunting, a hunting aid. Um, many, many theories. Could you briefly sketch through the leading ones and, and maybe give us a, a sense about what you think it's all about? Yeah, as with art in the modern world, of course, there were there were elements of a number of reasons for it. And certainly, I think the location, the extent to which the danger, the difficulty of which getting to the point where it was created suggests that it was important and there was probably a ritual and religious reason behind it. But although umbrella theories about it that explain all art, you know, on the back of a postcard, uh, are unfashionable now. And they, they, we, we now know they say a lot more about the people who forwarded these ideas. So when art was first discovered, rediscovered and authenticated, we were in the late Victorian world, early Edwardian world, for which really art was something to cheer up the walls of your industrial cottage or something like that so the first idea was that well, it was art for art's sake you know it's cold outside you've got an evening to spare let's draw a, uh, a horse and that kind of thing it's that's a very anachronistic western way of thinking of art and i don't think that really uh, caught on then of course all of the wonderful ethnographic information reaching britain in the early 20th century led specialists to propose 
that like all of these small-scale societies then in the modern world, uh, the art functioned in a magical way and it was what an anthropologist might call today vault magic, like voodoo, you know, cause and effect magic. So you want to have success in the hunt tomorrow. So what you do is you draw your picture of your horse, you do your rituals and so on, that empowers you and so on. And actually we often have what uh, arrows, as in the, the sign, depicted within the bodies of animals quite often. In Neo Cave in the French Pyrenees, which can be visited by the public, we have a lot of these and bison. So the hunting magic, which actually was formulated on the basis of Neo Cave, does hold at points as well. But whether it becomes before a hunt to propitiate, uh, to um, uh, you know, empower you, or whether it comes afterwards to thank the bison spirits, you know, for this uh, is a moot point. Another suggestion when we do have not cave art, but figurines carved of females, often obese, uh, sometimes pregnant females. Fertility has been suggested, but again, these are hunter-gatherer groups who would be concerned with keeping relatively small and, you know, not over-exploiting the environment. So that never really stuck. And then when we come through the 1960s and 70s, the information age, people suggest, well, maybe these are, you know, didactic aids, maybe they're classroom images and so on, which I've never bought. You know, if you want to show your kids what a reindeer looks like you show them a reindeer and if you want to show them what their hoof prints look like you show them their hoof prints you certainly don't go into the depths of a dark and dangerous cave to draw images when you can draw them on hides in your campsite on the walls of your teepee or something like that and then I suppose finally the last umbrella theory which has gained a lot of traction came about in the late 80s and that is the idea that it arises through visions experienced during altered states of consciousness and therefore was part of a shamanic system to borrow one word of the Tungus people uh, and so on and of course that reflects more new age concerns and Neolithic archaeology was getting all traveller like and this kind of thing at the time so I've never really had uh, much traction with the, the shamania uh, argument as a, a colleague uh, calls it but really uh, since then uh, these kind of largely anglophone and popularising umbrella notions have, have fallen by the wayside. If I had to say what would be one of the most dominant functions of it, I would certainly say it's a celebration of creation. The animals are often placed as if they're dripping out of the ceiling. They're placed on bosses that hang down or they're placed as if they're coming out of cracks. It seems very obvious that caves were, were thought of as places where animals or their spirits came into the world. And perhaps it's, I would see it as a form of midwifery, if you like. You know, you go into a cave, our brains are wired to make sense of these. We all do it. You look up in the clouds, you see a poodle or you cut open a tomato and see the face of Jesus and this kind of thing this pareidolia uh, was certainly at work in the cave so you see a line a natural crack on the wall it looks like the dorsal area the back of a horse so you help that horse come into this world by completing it by drawing or engraving it and so on but as I say it, it, there's that if that might be a relatively overriding concern sometimes there's 
personal celebrations. Sometimes it's we're all getting together and celebrating life, celebrating creation, remembering that we all sing from the same song sheet and bring our own pigments to the party, so to speak. So... Broadly speaking, you're saying that we need to be a bit careful on these big overarching theories and really we need to look at the context and, and stories going on in a particular environment and try and understand what's going on there, which stands to reason because we're talking of such a long period and such a diverse and disparate sort of concept, aren't we? You got it. Exactly. So, you know, the the concerns of, let's say, an artist around 27, 28,000 years ago, a Gravettian, as we would call them, were presumably very different to one around 15,000, let's say, the, the middle and late Magdalenian, as we would call that. So, no, just as themes and particularly styles change over this vast period, then one assumes that broad concerns or variability, the diversity of reasons to do this art changed as well. A good sort of follow-on question from this from Shining Pyramid is, is is the art we see considered as intended to be final or have spaces been reused and and, and sort of been, been uh, stuff being put on top of it? What's the answer to that? Yeah, that's a very good question because we do have examples of both. Lascaux seems to have been created in pretty much one go, over 2,000 images, highly organised, there for show, probably there to be revisited and so on. Quite often, it's a fire-and-forget art, you know, for whatever reason, I'm going to engrave a reindeer on the walls of this cave. That's it. That's the important thing. But as we've been delving into using dating, uh, laboratory dating methods, particularly uranium thorium, we can tell that Caves that we thought were often decorated in one go actually were decorated in several phases with thousands of years between them. Altamira is a very good example of this. And sometimes art has been placed over other pieces of art. Sometimes art has been touched up. Very famously in Peshmel Cave in the Lot Department of France, we have two horses that are drawn uh, facing in opposite directions with lots of spots on them, the spotted horses. This cave can be visited Peshmel too but we can see that there the main of one has been and the chest area has been touched up at a later date we don't know how later uh, at all but we can see there was sometimes a concern with restoring if you like and sometimes obliteration even in Lascaux we have several heads of wild cattle or oxen completely obliterated probably very quickly by a large aurochs painted over them so again it's a very western concept that you know art is there to be continually enjoyed it belongs to us all and so on one gets the impression that whatever the issues of access were and they probably changed it was the creation of the art and whatever the associated activities were uh, that were really important about it You've mentioned some of the, the key examples there. If our listeners are inspired to go and have a look at uh, some of these places, you've mentioned Lascaux, kind of probably the most famous type site, which is has been recreated, hasn't it? It's, it's because of, of, of concerns about the impacts of visitors. So that's one to visit. You mentioned Altamira in the Spanish Pyrenees, Chauvet uh, Cave in uh, the Ardèche, isn't it? Where, where would you suggest people go to if they want to get a sense of this art? 
three centres. So you could either go to the Dordogne, focus on the village of Les Isi, the so-called capital of prehistory, where there's a stunning museum anyway. That's where you can visit Lascaux 4, a, a stunning reconstruction, uh, and several other caves, Font de Gaume, uh, Les Combarelles. There's a real um, great number of them easily accessible from Les Isi. The second region would be the French Pyrenees, Ariège, uh, where one can visit Neo, Bediac and others, massive caves uh, with lots of art. Neo alone it would repay that uh, that effort. And Gargas, which has several hundred hand stencils, isn't too far uh, away as well. Or finally, uh, Cantabria, so northern Spain, where one can visit the replication uh, of Altamira, one can visit El Castillo, several smaller caves uh, as well. So any one of those three, and of, of course having friends and colleagues in all of them, I'm not going to single one out. Do the lot of them. as, a, as a, Follow the pilgrimage route, you know, to Compostela and take them all in at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, right, last question from me. Where's the future of cave art research going? You talk a lot in your in your new book about sort of the, the, the scientific um, revolution on, on Paleolithic archaeology. What are we going to learn about cave art? What are we going to explore and, uh, and discover uh, in, the, in the years ahead? Yeah, well, I, I hope there is a decent future for it. There's, there's not many practitioners of it who actually get underground and spend time uh, researching it. So I hope we can maintain that. But certainly, will develop more our idea of the chronological change over these broad periods of time. I mean, the results showing that Neanderthals were producing non-figurative art before 64,000 years ago only came out about a few uh, years ago. So there'll be plenty more surprises in dating alone. And as techniques continue to improve, when we can really use microscopic amounts of material to date and therefore convince curators that they can let us take a scalpel to their precious art, that alone will be quite important too. But for me, and I'm biased here, I think understanding the underlying psychology of the art, the, 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 and bearing in mind this is the earliest appearance of human art, so our the, the our visual psychological systems played much more of an active role in what that art looked like when it emerged and how it changed over time. And this is something we can investigate scientifically. I'm working with our professor of visual psychology, Bob Kentridge at Durham. He, he works particularly on the visual uh, system. And I've mentioned pareidolia, that fact that the brain has evolved to make very snap decisions about potential dangers. So if you've got a bear approaching you and you see it out of the corner of your eye... Obviously, you don't want to think ah, it's probably a rock and ignore it. And you don't want to have to take your time to look around and just ascertain that it is a bear. So our brains have evolved to make snap decisions. It's better to say, my word, it's a bear, run, and then just be embarrassed that it's actually only a rock, you know. So that's how our brain is working in caves. And we can use cutting edge visual psychological techniques. So we can track people's eyes, of course, and see 
what parts of rock they're drawn to and this sort of thing. But one thing we have been doing, we recreate a virtual cave in virtual reality. We take 3D photogrammetric images of real art. We've done this for El Castillo Cave, for example, uh, in Spain. We superimpose that in the cave. We give the participant a simulated light level, so they hold up a lantern that simulates what it would have been like for an Ice Age explorer, as it were. And then we digitally remove the art, uh, and then we just see what where their eyes are actually drawn to. We get them to explore the cave, and we build up a heat map of those spots in the cave that eyes are often drawn to. We ask them, what do you see there? And nine times out of ten, they'll be drawn to the same area. They'll say, well, look a bit like a horse there and sure enough we can then put the the actual uh, digital photo back on there and show that it's a horse so there's a, that's just one example of a number of things we're doing so for me really getting scientifically at how our brains determine the nature of the earliest art is probably one of the most promising as well as that bread and butter of, of refining our dating of it uh, even further too That was Professor Paul Pettit. His book, Homo Sapiens Rediscovered, How Science is Revolutionising Our Origin Story, is published now by Thames and Hudson. And if you'd like to get involved in the visual psychology project that Paul mentioned in the interview, then check out household-art.com to see if you can decipher what's depicted in examples of Ice Age art. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.